Let's turn in our copy of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Well, let's pay careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us here this morning. Amen. Relying upon God for His help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 1 as we focus our attention this morning on verses 26 and 27 as part of our ongoing exposition of the epistle to the Romans. Verse 26, again, 
for the context here, we find ourselves in this series of stages of decline within the culture of these pagan nations. Paul is here seeking to illustrate the need for the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Why do we need righteousness? Well, all the Gentile nations, all the non-Jewish nations need the righteousness of God through Christ by faith because for generations and really since the fall, they have been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against their unrighteousness and their ungodliness, not only as individuals, but corporately and collectively. Paul traces the cultural decline through uh, you might say it's arbitrary, but we've sought to, to classify this in five stages of cultural decline. And we saw the first stage was ingratitude, that they had the revelation of the knowledge of God in nature. They had something of the knowledge of God's invisible attributes, His power, His wisdom, and His justice, and so on. And yet they suppressed it in unrighteousness. They weren't interested in it. And they didn't glorify Him as God and give thanks. And so God's on the periphery. And then stage two, idolatry. Created things fill the void of the place that God ought to have occupied in their hearts and lives and in their culture. And so, created things. And first we see that There's this intellectual idolatry where man worships himself and his own ideas, professing to be wise, rejecting God's revelation, and the result is foolishness. And the result of that intellectual idolatry is religious idolatry. If man's opinions reign supreme, then they reign supreme in the religious arena and man defines who God is and how God is to be worshipped. And so God is brought down to this corruptible, created level. And that, of course, then pulls out the restraints that the revelation of God, even in nature for the pagan Gentiles, that restraining effect of the knowledge of God that it had on their consciences and on their conduct is taken away. And so stage three, sexual immorality, we saw in verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts. Those lusts of their hearts that were restrained by God's revelation, now it opens the floodgates of sexual sin within the culture. We considered that previously. And that sexual sin at one level leads to a sexual sin on another level. So we come to stage 4, which picking up in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions... For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So you can see that sexual immorality in general, we might even say heterosexual immorality, Uh, takes effect. It's an invasive species within the culture. It's running wild. 
and previous generations perhaps wanted to try to suppress it and stop it, but eventually if you can't beat them, join them. So now it's accepted, it's liberated, and through sexual freedom it enslaves the society, but it continues in its enslaving power. In other words, it pushes it further toward stage four, which is perversion, which involves this this homosexual sin that we're going to be considering this morning. Now, what I, what I want to point out, first of all, just in a preliminary manner, is that stage four has an organic continuity with stage three. There's, in other words, stage four is an organic continuation of stage three. We ought not to think that these stages of decline are just arbitrary judicial punishments of God. They are judicial punishments of God. The guilt for one stage leads God to pull out the restraints which leads to the next stage. It is a punishment. We've seen that in the past. But it's not arbitrary. When God pulls out the restraint, that means that uh, the momentum of sin continues in the direction of human lust and human desire and human sinfulness. So, God's pulling out the restraints, but it's not as though He's forcing anybody to do anything. There's an organic momentum that takes place from stage 3 to stage 4. And you can see that in the text. Uh, Verse 24 and verse 26 are very much parallel. I don't think they're parallel in every respect, but I think there's a significant parallel here. So you see the structure, verse 24 begins with therefore, and verse 26, for this reason. So essentially the same uh, opening to the verse. And then you can see that in verse 24, therefore God also gave them up. In verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. So it's this pulling out of the restraints. The exact same dynamic is being referred to here. And then you can see the thing that God's giving them up to is parallel. It's in verse 24, the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies. And verse 26, vile passions. Now the word vile there is the same word for dishonor. So it's really dishonorable passions. That helps us to see once again the parallel between these two verses. Uh, Given up to uncleanness, sexual sin in general, in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies. And then verse 26, vile passions. And verse 27, burned in their lust, committing what is shameful. So you you can see the parallel between these two verses and how that we ought to understand these, these verses as going together. Um, when, sexual, uh, when sexuality becomes detached from marriage, it becomes detached from uh, a meaningful relationship. When, it be, when it's detached from procreation and parenting and, and, and just the whole beautiful picture of biblical marriage when it becomes simply a fix, a desire, uh, an appetite for dopamine rushing through the bloodstream, when that's what sexuality becomes in stage three, that eventually leads it to burst forth into stage four. 
Because at the end of the day, if it's just all about me getting these appetites satisfied and feeling the way I want to feel, well then, I'm going to do whatever in order to get that rush, in order to get that feeling. And it will have very little, or let's just say it'll have less of, it'll have less to do with biblical marriage and biblical procreation and the joys of biblical intimate relationship within marriage. It will resemble that less and less because it's not about that. It's about my selfish appetites and getting that dopamine through my bloodstream. And of course, we know with these types of things, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol, uh, there is a law of diminishing returns in these types of sins. And so what gave me that rush early on, eventually that's not enough. And so I need to keep getting more and more of that particular drug or alcohol or different sexual things that I just have to keep pushing the envelope to get more and more just to get back, if possible, to that original high. And so you can see stage three, it's all about pleasure. That just opens Pandora's box for all kinds of methods and means that people use to try to attain that original high, that original pleasure, and to continue to increase it. And it's in a sort of society that, that is obsessed with pleasure and is obsessed with sensuality and decadence that stage three turns into stage four. You can see this in Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel 16, verse 49, where the Lord through Ezekiel speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah And he's warning his own people of falling into the same pattern of sin. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. He says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Think of David on the rooftop, not out fighting the battles of the Lord. Uh, and he falls into sexual sin. Idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty, and they committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. You see the decadence and the general love of pleasure rather than a love of God that then leads to this sexual abomination in stage 4. In fact, Jude verse 7 speaks of this. Um, Jude verse 7 gives us a, a very similar description of Sodom and Gomorrah. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah, they were obsessed with pleasure and they indulged in sexual immorality. And then, stage three morphs into stage four, they go after strange flesh. Now obviously that's talking about the men with men dynamic here, women with women, homosexuality. It's referred to as strange flesh. And the fact is, these things should be strange to us. Uh, The world wants to make these things commonplace, but here we're told that it's strange, it's different, it's foreign. 
It's outside of God's design for holiness and happiness. And the word that's used for strange here, uh, strangely enough, is the word heteros. Heteros. Uh, which we use in the word heterosexual to refer to, you know, opposites attract, right? You're, you're, you're marrying someone of another sex or gender, right? But here, the word is saying that it's something other than what God has designed. It's not what God has designed for us. It's something that's wholly and entirely other. It's outside of His purposes for our lives. It's strange flesh. And we're told that in Sodom and Gomorrah, they suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, fire is an interesting uh, term here to be used because we're told throughout the New Testament that sexual desire is like fire. 1 Corinthians 7 urges young people to you know, take the steps you need to get married so that you don't burn with passion or burn with lust. And of course, when that lust burns outside of marriage and beyond the bounds, that heterosexual sinful lust is, is, a, is a sort of like a campfire. But you see in stage four, it burns out. It becomes a wildfire. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, it had consumed the hearts and the lives of that society to the point where there weren't even ten righteous people in, in these cities for God to spare them. And so when that wildfire of lust spreads, we're told that the punishment fits the crime, that God sends eternal fire. Now, why does it say eternal fire? I thought God just sent fire from heaven and consumed them all and, and killed the people that were in Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. That was temporal fire. That wasn't eternal fire, but you see what Jude is pointing out here is that the worst aspect of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah was actually not the physical fire that fell from heaven. In fact, it's possible that for many of these people, they they didn't really go through a long and painful process, just like with a a volcano, the lava just in some ways comes so swiftly that it just kills you very quickly. Um... So it wasn't the temporal fire that was the worst part of it. It was the fact that having lived in rebellion against God and chosen this world and its pleasures and even this strange flesh as their inheritance, they reaped the whirlwind. They reaped everlasting fire. It was hell that was the worst part of that judgment. And so you can look at our society today and you can say, well, God God isn't judging us that badly today. You know, you see all this immorality, you see all this wickedness. Well, um, even though things are tanking a little bit lately, but overall things are pretty good. We don't, we don't have volcanoes erupting and killing millions of people. But the fact of the matter is that the eternal fire of hell for all who are outside of Christ and thinking specifically of those who are in sinful slavish bondage to these sexual sins, that eternal fire is still there. It's still happening. You look at the number of people that die every single day in our country and what percentage of them would seem to be outside of Christ in our day. That eternal fire is still there. And by faith, we need to see the reality of that judgment and and grieve over it and take stock of it and be warned by it. There's a sense in which that visible judgment 
in Abraham's day on Sodom and Gomorrah would have been a great warning to all the other societies and civilizations of that, of that day. But, uh, but for us, we don't have that warning. People are just dying, and the, the page in the obituary column just continues, and people are going into everlasting fire day after day with no warning. In a sense, they had an advantage uh, in, in Abraham's day. So we need to take stock of that. This fire is kindled in stage three. It continues into stage four. But this is a distinct stage of decline. We would be incorrect if we concluded that verse 24 and verses 26 and 27 are just completely parallel describing the same thing. They have much in common, but verses 26 and 27 push the envelope. They, they, they take it further. Verse 24 is speaking about people who are given over in the lusts of their hearts. They have these lusts, these natural sinful desires of the fallen human nature, heterosexual, immoral desires. They're given over in the lusts of their hearts. But in verse 26 and 27, they're given over to vile passions which are against nature. Verse 27 even uses that word even, to say this is just so shocking, even the women did this and the men did that. So there's something that goes beyond stage three here. That's why we've divided it up in this way. Now, what, what can we say about this type of perversion? First, the first thing we can say from our text is that it is voluntary. It is voluntary. And notice that it's called an exchange. It's referred to as something where the individuals involved in it made an exchange. Verse 23 talks about the exchange of idolatry, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for this human or animal image of idolatry. But verse 25, again, exchange the truth of God for the lie. So there's that idolatrous exchange And verse 26 says the same thing. Uh, For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. In verse 27, the men left, they departed. Uh, This is a word that is used throughout the New Testament for choosing to do something. When Jesus called the disciples from their fishing boats, they left their nets and followed Jesus. That was a decision that they made. It was voluntary. It was an exchange. They exchanged the fishing nets for the nets of the gospel. They left one thing for another. They exchanged one thing for another. We're told as well that they burned in their lust and that they received the penalty of their error. Not somebody else's error. Not just something that they stumbled into. But it is an error on their part. The error of idolatry, exchanging God, leading to the error of of this perversion, exchanging the natural for the unnatural. Now, notice that there is a connection here in this voluntary choice between the idolatry and the perversion. Because what did they exchange when they traded in God for something else? They traded Him in for an image of man. They didn't want to worship God who is holy, who is wholly other and transcendent and distinct between the creature and the creator. There's that distinction. They didn't want that distinct creator. They wanted to worship something that was the same 
a mirror image of themselves, the image of man. And you see in this perversion, it's very similar that the natural use is the man and the woman, and God has designed it so that there's this otherness, this difference, this complementary nature between the male and the female. And yet, instead, it's exchanged for this mirror image so that in a way we're desiring and worshiping a mirror image of ourselves. So you can see the the connection there. It is a voluntary exchange. Now, in saying that, let me also qualify that. When we talk about God providentially giving people over in this way, we are not denying that there are a host of factors that play in to that providential giving over of a person to this. So it is voluntary, but let me just mention uh, at least nine other factors, very briefly, but uh, nine other factors that we're not denying that these things exist. In fact, we have a heightened sensitivity to these things to be careful to address these things that can open the floodgates as well. So there is, first of all, active recruitment and propaganda to lure people into these types of relationships. So that's a factor that in God's providence can take place and lead people from stage three to stage four. Secondly, there are developmental problems in terms of uh, the statistically the number of children that are in two-parent homes and that have the benefit of a stable home environment. Even among unbelievers in the past, you, you had something of male and female roles and something of... of uh, this developmental process of understanding one's identity as, as a boy or a girl and what that means. And so because of sin and its disruption morally and structurally of the biblical family model, the fact is that this creates developmental issues that can then play into and make children more vulnerable to these things. Thirdly, there's obviously childhood sexual abuse when there's sexual abuse this can be a huge factor as well and often is the case. Uh, So we need to be sympathetic here and we need to do whatever we can to try to avoid these kind of factors. But, But that's a factor. Fourthly, there are mental and physiological abnormalities and factors that play in to this particular sin. Um, and, And more could be said, but we need to take those things into account. Uh, Fifthly, there are circumstantial factors. For instance, uh, prisons have a higher rate of some of these perversions. You're sequestering people with their own gender, so on and so forth. Uh, Wicked, immoral people are going to seek that dopamine however they need to get it. So there are circumstantial factors. Sixthly, there are sociological factors. So because of media and because of... Well, let's just blame media for now... uh, we can present men as if a real man is uh, Rambo or LeBron James or you know, some great athlete and they're, they're built like a tank and so on and so forth. This view of masculinity which glorifies a certain type of masculinity and makes certain other people feel, well, if I'm not Rambo, well, then maybe something's wrong with me. And maybe they begin to have identity issues and they're, they're made more vulnerable to this sin. Again, it's voluntary, but there are obviously things in any sin that can make us more vulnerable to temptation. The same is true with women. The media presents, uh, in a way, if you read... Between the lines, the way the media presents women, oftentimes you're either Barbie or you're Ellen. 
I mean, if you, if you have a certain look and a certain persona, then, oh, this is what it means to be a woman and this is what men are looking for. And then if you don't, if you look different or so on and so forth, there's not an appreciation for the diversity of God's creative handiwork and the diversity of masculinity and femininity. And so it, it causes many young women to be tempted toward perverse behavior and perverse lifestyle because they feel like, well, I, I don't meet the criteria for that, so I must be something else. And the thing is, we've done that. We've permitted that to happen. And we as a society, and even in the church, we have to be careful. We've done that. Social, sociological pressures. Seventhly, there are, um, some of you may chuckle at this, but there are actually environmental toxins. For instance, BPA. Studies have shown that uh, these types of toxins that are present in many plastic products actually reduce testosterone and, uh, and they, they mimic estrogen in men and they can bring that level down. That is a factor, uh, according to scientists. Eighthly, uh, there are habitualized tendencies. So somebody is lured into a sin one time and maybe another time, and like many sins, they get a habitualized tendency and pattern of the way they look at people and the way they think, and people can become so enslaved to this habitualized tendency in their life. And so now, in terms of repentance, it becomes very, very difficult to, to retrace those steps. Definitely not impossible. By the grace of God, all things are possible, but it's very difficult. And yet there is a voluntary element there. Ninthly, there are, there, there's the idea of a corporate or a collective judgment. In other words, we need to realize that he, Paul says here that their women were given over. So it's a judgment on the whole society. It's not just a judgment on the women, it's even their women. In other words, it's a punishment on the entire nation or culture because of this widespread idolatry, there are these general tendencies and maybe these providential factors are unleashed and God pulls back the restraints on those as well. And so um, it's a judgment on, on us when, when our sons or our daughters uh, fall into this. It's a judgment collectively. Not speaking individually here, but collectively. And uh, God judges to the third and fourth generation collectively. So Understand, it's voluntary. The text says that. It's a sin. But there are these other factors. Now, recognize this. Okay, We might be tempted to say, well, let's look at these factors and uh, let's view this sin as so far different from every other sin. But the fact of the matter is, think about other types of sins. Um, think about someone who is an angry person. And there were factors in their upbringing with their parents uh, with, with their father, their mother, or lack thereof, in their life, situations, traumatic things happen in their life, and so on, and it just snowballs, and they're angry, and they have a pattern of being angry, and they have this habitualized tendency of anger, and society is not necessarily discouraging that, and so they're just a volcano of anger, and would we allow them to make, to make the excuse and say, well, this isn't voluntary because of all these factors. No. Uh, the same could be true of someone who is a racist. 
I was raised this way, and this is the cultural baggage that I have, and so I hate minority people, and that's just who I am. That's just my identity. You need to accept that. Maybe the evangelicals come in and say, well, you're allowed to hate those people. Just don't act on it, and all these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, uh, it's not a valid excuse for anger, for racism. It's not a valid excuse for uh, sexually abusing children. It's not a valid excuse for any type of sin. What it is, is it's just reality that overcoming sin is going to be super hard and apart from God's grace, impossible. We're going to be fighting all the baggage, all the factors, and we can't just embrace this as our identity. We need, we need to take up the sword of the Spirit and begin to fight. And uh, homosexuality, is it impossible to think of a homosexual repenting and, and being transformed and, and so on? Well, we know it's not. You know, we all have friends. We all know people that God has done that. But the fact is, listen, there are people that are so angry that you would say to yourself, there's no way this person's ever going to be a patient person. They're so angry. And what about them? Is it hopeless for them? Is it hopeless for everybody? Because we all came into this world with a sinful nature and with sins that it would take a miracle to overcome. So understand Uh, This is voluntary, and that should be an encouragement that it can actually change. That this is not an insurmountable uh, slave master that we can't be freed from. God cuts through the gates of iron. Um, Secondly, this is shameful. Our text says in verse 27, men with men committing what is shameful. Now, guilt speaks to what we've done. But shame is the contamination of who we are. So, I've done something. I'm guilty for that. There's a liability to some type of punishment. But shame is where it contaminates my character. And it contaminates my reputation. And it it infects my identity. The opposite of shame is glory. When we are perfected in glory in heaven, we will perfectly reflect the Lord Jesus Christ, will perfectly reflect the moral attributes of God, and it will not only be what we do and think and say, but who we are. We were created in the image and glory of God to reflect His glory. And when we sin, yes, we're guilty, but it also, when we fall into sin, uh, we find that it's more than just guilt. Oh, there needs to be a penalty paid. It, it just, you feel it. It infects us with a sense of shame. Now, man traded God's glory for man's glory, and so it is fitting that God would cause man's glory to be turned into shame. Really, that's the due penalty that's spoken of in verse 27. I don't think that's speaking of some kind of uh, disease or something. Uh, the due penalty for this sin is the shame itself. Uh, people talk about staying in the closet, coming out of the closet. The idea of shame is part of the phenomenon of this sin, whether you're for it or against it. That's why we have Pride Month, because there's this idea we, we, we need to glory in this. We need to represent this as laudable, as approved, as good and beneficial and celebrate it, what is that? It's a sort of 
uh, insecurity and fragility of people who are they're insecure and they just want they, they want everything around them to be filtered so that everything is encouraging and celebrating their lifestyle and nothing is reminding their conscience of what they know is the case that this is not good this is this is shameful I shouldn't be doing this I feel so ashamed that I'm doing it so I need to root out anything that would stimulate my conscience Jeremiah chapter what is it chapter 6 and chapter 8 says that when we get to the point where we no longer know how to blush anymore we, we get to that point of spiritual degradation. Even Philippians 3.19, that we glory in our shame, parading it and seeking to have it celebrated so as to drown out that deep down sense that something's wrong, that I'm not satisfied. Uh, now what I'm saying can be characterized as homophobia. Homophobia, the word Phobia means fear. Is the Bible really homophobic here? Is Paul afraid of homosexuality? Is he afraid of it? Well, no. He told us earlier in the chapter that he, he's not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. He's not intimidated by homosexuality. He's not intimidated by sexual sin. He's not intimidated by anything. Why? Why is he not intimidated? Because he knows that God is powerful. God is almighty. The same God who sent the floods and destroyed mankind, the same God who saved Noah and his household and set the rainbow as a sign of his glory, God is behind the gospel. God is promoting the gospel. And the whole point of Romans 1 is to set the stage for God's answer to human sin which is the sovereign work of Christ, which conquers sin, conquers perversion, conquers even this particular sin, and shows it to be what it is. Now, is it something that we should be afraid of? Well, my friends, Christianity has survived. Christianity has survived the arena. It has survived being lit on fire as a candle in Nero's courts. Christianity has survived being burned at the stake. Christianity has survived persecutions even today in communist countries where people are slaughtered for the name of Christ. Christianity has survived. Christianity has nothing to be afraid of, of a movement that can barely survive the First Amendment. It's not something that we should be afraid of. In fact, we have the answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I have so much more that I want to say here, but let me cut to the chase. Let me cut to the chase. This sin is voluntary. It's shameful. I was going to go on to say that it is irrational and self-defeating. It's against nature. But at the end of the day, what is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1? His point in Romans chapter 1 is that this sets the stage for the saving power of the gospel. This sin is pardonable. We think of this as the, the you know, some people think of this as the unpardonable sin. That uh, if, if you, for some people think of a suicide, the unpardonable sin, or they think of homosexuality, the unpardonable sin. Um, 
or voting for the wrong political party. You know, some people, unpardonable sin. But the fact of the matter is that this is a pardonable sin. All sin is pardonable. Every single sin other than the refusal to embrace Jesus Christ through a hard heart of unbelief, every sin, the blood of Christ, we're told, washes away the guilt of every sin. It takes us when we're stained and defiled and ashamed and it replaces, it gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. It takes away our sin and clothes us in righteousness. It takes away our curse and makes us to be a blessing and to receive blessing from Christ. Look with me at Romans 3 verse 20. Romans 3 verse 20. Beginning in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So Paul has pointed out the sins of the Gentile nations, chapter 2, the sins of the Jewish people, and understand these were the sins that were common in Paul's day. Sometimes we get the idea that uh, some of these perversions, these are new. These are not new. Um, It's just Christianity pushed them out for so long we forgot what a danger they are. These things are not new. Paul was dealing with these things. He was dealing with homosexuality. He was dealing with transgender in his own day. That was par for the course. That was common in the first century Roman Empire. That was common. And he says, look, it's one example, but look, this entire world, Jew and Gentile, has been shown to be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Why is Paul presenting the list of sins that we find cataloged at the end of Romans 1, described later in chapter 2? Why does he present these sins? To convict us of our guilt and our shame so that we would flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we would stop pridefully celebrating our sin and that we would humbly be ashamed of our sin and come to the foot of the cross for mercy. And this is how God works. He breaks us. He breaks our heart with the law that He may heal us with the medicine of the Gospel. And so He goes on, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's no difference. There's no difference. You can look at that from two angles. No difference. So on the one hand, there's no difference. So don't any of us dare think Oh, because I'm not in stage four, therefore uh, I'm better off. No, there's no difference. We all deserve God's eternal wrath. There's no favoritism. Uh, It's not as though we can be the Pharisee uh, coming to the temple and saying, God, I thank you in this sort of false piety. I thank you, God, that I'm not like this person or that person. Um, I see this other person and I feel pretty good about myself because I'm not there. I'm back in stage one where I just don't glorify you as God. No, no. We're all the same. Every one of these stages 
doesn't matter how close you are to the ark. If you're not inside, you're going to drown. So there is no difference. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, there's no difference. So if I'm guilty of stage four perversion, I can't say, well, I have all these excuses. No, take a number. We all have sins where we could come up with a list of excuses. We all feel like that anger is who we are and we can't get over it. We can't stop. And I can tell you as a pastor that I've dealt with enough people in sins other than stage four perversion where they've had the same sense of utter hopelessness of overcoming this or that sin. So take a number. There's no difference. We all need Christ. We all need to be born again. We all need the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to give us faith to believe that God can cut through the, the, the bars of iron and demolish the gates of brass and trample the serpent underfoot. And we're told that's exactly what he has done because Paul was very successful in evangelizing all the different stages of Gentile decline. We think of what Paul says, we say, boy, that's not going to be very successful. Talking about shame. Here's the thing. Paul saw many people converted out of sexual sin and sexual perversion. And uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Now, does that mean that the angry person... Uh, doesn't experience a strong temptation in certain situations where something is just sort of, uh, there's a trigger that triggers a certain thought to go down a certain path that they've traveled in the past. It does not mean that that's not there. Of course it's there. Of course, every one of us struggling with sin knows that when we get in this deeply ingrained pattern, there are going to be things that remind us of the past and tempt us toward a different path of disobedience, but the fact of the matter is that these people in Corinth were cleansed. They were enabled to cleanse themselves daily in the precious blood of Christ. They were enabled to be cleansed of their guilt, cleansed of the influence and defilement of sin, sanctified, set apart, justified, the whole package of benefits in Christ. They were able to become new creatures in Christ. Residual temptations? Of course. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that these new creatures in Christ, which he describes in chapter 5, he says that in fact they were enabled to actively defeat these sinful proclivities. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments. Whenever you're faced with temptation, there's an argument going on in your mind. You need to do this. We've done this before. This was pleasurable. Let's do this. Let's go after this. This is going to be beneficial. Listen, you've got to be ready, not with carnal, you know, uh, unbiblical human psychology. You need to be ready with the warfare of the Holy Spirit in your mind 
pulling down these strongholds, casting down these arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now listen to this. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The proverb says that what a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's true. Our identity is defined by our hearts, by our thoughts. This is telling us that when Christ takes residence in your soul, when the Holy Spirit unites you to Christ, and it's no longer you living, but Christ living in you, the fact is that He enables you to bring into captivity those thoughts, those inclinations, those things that, that are pulling you this way and that way, that, that urge for the dopamine rush, whatever it is, that, that, that the Holy Spirit will enable you to take dominion over your thought life. That's powerful. These sins that have enslaved you, these thoughts, these inclinations that have enslaved you, you can say, not today, sin, I'm not going to do it, and I'm going to put you in captivity. If I can't get rid of my remaining sin, um, it's going to be in captivity. And Jesus Christ is going to remain in the driver's seat. My friends, this is salvation. Anything less is not salvation. If God forgives my sin, but I'm the same angry jerk that I was for the last 20 years, that doesn't help me. That doesn't take away my shame. That doesn't recreate me into what is beautiful and glorious and what I'll be perfected in in the life to come. Salvation involves a radical transformation of who I am, how I think, what I do. And it is a beautiful thing. Is this sin uncleanness? Is it a form of uncleanness? Yes, but as I mentioned in the prayer, Zechariah 13.1, God has opened a fountain for all uncleanness. And we all need to go to that fountain every single day. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, His blood shed for us, His perfect obedience even unto death and unto the resurrection of the cross. My friends, He bore the shame of our sin. He bore it. And there's no need puffing ourselves up with pride in our sin, whatever your sin is. Don't puff yourself up with pride. Bring yourself low and me too before Christ. For we've all sinned and fallen short of His glory. We all ought to come before Him with shame of face and just cast it at the foot of the cross. My friends, He will take away your shame. He bore your shame. Do you know what the cross signifies? Why did He have to die on the cross stark naked? having been spit upon, there's blood, there's saliva falling down His naked body as He's hanging on the cross. Why did He have to be shamed publicly? Because that's our sin. That's my sin. That's your sin. And we need to stop glorying in the shame and simply look to the cross of shame and find the glory of salvation. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We pray, O God, that You would humble us low, that we would tremble at Your Word, that we would come to see the beauty and the glory of a shamed Savior on the cross, 
that the world would be crucified unto us in all of its shameful deeds and that we would be crucified unto the world and set apart in a holy fellowship with you. We pray that we would glorify and enjoy you as you've commanded and designed us to do. That we would through faith in Christ be declared righteous. That we'd be adopted as your children, your sons and your daughters. And that we would be holy as you are holy. Oh Lord, give us faith to believe in your transforming power. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.